Welcome everyone to our podcast, The MBA Perspective on Accounting. In this podcast series, we are bringing together leading academic researchers with current MBA students to challenge ideas of accounting research and discuss topics that are relevant to both business leaders and academics. I'm Sarah Kröchert, an assistant professor in accounting at the Cambridge Judge Business School, and I'm very happy to take you through our discussions. In our first episode, we're talking about environmental, social and governance or ESG reporting. So we talk about ESG issues that matter to business operations and how companies report about them. Interests are not just issues that affect how companies operate, but also issues that arise in part because of companies' operations. One of those issues is highlighted by the COP27 summit that is taking place in Egypt while we are recording this session. Business operations worldwide contribute significantly to the still too high level of greenhouse gas emissions and thus to climate change. To discuss how companies report on these issues, I'm joined today by Ethan Ruan, Assistant Professor of Business Administration and Faculty Co-Chair of the Impact Weighted Accounts Project at Harvard Business School. Ethan, you are our expert for the session today. Can you summarize in a few sentences what your research is about? Sure thing. So I broadly study the uh, disclosure and measurement of ESG issues and human capital specifically. And over the long run, the hope is to see how improving these measures can help to change managerial decision making. Thanks a lot, Ethan. And with that, I'm coming to the most important people on this podcast, Paul Sahari, Matilda Luz, Priya Zaikuma, and Mario Parosini. All four are currently enrolled in our MBA program here at Judge and will challenge Ethan in the upcoming discussion. To the four of you, can you give us a quick summary of your background and whether you have any experience on ESG-related topics? Matilda, do you want to start? Sure. So I'm Matilde. My background is in clinical trials and pharmaceuticals, and I don't have any background in ESG-related topics. Thanks. Paul? Um, hi, Ethan. My name is Paul Zahari. Um, I am a professional engineer. I've uh, worked for 10 years in the Canadian energy industry and uh, definitely have crossed paths with some, some ESG topics in my uh, time. Uh, my name is Mario Parasini. Uh, so for the past five years, I've been working at a commercial bank, initially uh, in marketing, um, but then in technology. I don't have any formal background in ESG topics, but uh, our, my previous team, we looked at a scope three emissions uh, ESG model, um, which was quite interesting. Hi, my name is Priya. Um, I've worked, uh, I've spent the past 12 years working in Germany, helping develop uh, corporate project portfolios. And the past five years, I've worked extensively on quantitative analysis of projects that feed into ESG reports. Thanks a lot, Priya. And to all of you, thanks for joining today's session. And with that, I'd say, let's get started. Matilda, do you want to introduce the first question? Sure. So I think we can start with um, what are the environmental, social and governance issues that matter for companies? There are a lot. And it's interesting because most of them shouldn't even be bucketed into ESG. If you think about environment and emissions, you know, this is both on the risk and on the profitability side, something that firms should be concerned themselves with. Better run companies should have fewer emissions than more poorly, poorly run companies. 
Um, on the human capital side as well, you know, human capital is clearly a growing risk to firms because they rely more and more on their people and they have no control over those people in terms of they can leave whenever they want. Um, on the from society's perspective, you know, the environmental side, there's clearly a, a direct link because the emissions that a firm produces directly impact our lives and our lifestyles. Um, on the human capital side, it's less direct. It's questions about you know what opportunities should companies be offering? How can they improve the people that oper that exist in the communities in which they operate? Um, so some of the ESG objectives can hurt firm profitability. Um, how can we achieve a balance between those? And do we really want to pursue um, ESG objectives that might hurt the profitability? It's a really tough question to wrestle with. And you know, my thinking on it has evolved a lot recently because what we think of as profits and shareholders has changed in the last 20 years or so. So shareholders used to be individuals holding stock, depending on dividends for retirement income and the like. But now we have four or five large asset holders who basically own every company in the world. And so therefore, it's no longer, they don't care whether one company beats another company in terms of profits. They care that there is an economic system 20, 30, 50 years down the road that are still producing profits. And so it's less about short-term profitability. It's more about short-term risk mitiga mitigation to ensure long-term profitability. And so in that way, if you think about it that way, it's, you know, there there's less of a debate about that trade-off. Yeah. Um. So in terms of the financial accounting side of things, um, how do um, the, how does the ESG information um, differ from the other information that companies traditionally report? So currently, it differs in several ways. First, you, first the evolution has is very different. We've been wrestling with financial reporting for centuries now, whereas ESG reporting is a decade old, a little bit more than that. The first ESG information was disclosed in the late 1990s. Um, but from an execution point of view, ESG information right now tends to be a lot more qualitative. It's not companies reporting financial numbers. It's more about them talking broadly about how they're addressing these issues. Um, this is, again, reflective of a, ESG is so broad. There's so many different things that companies can be doing, unlike with profitability. It's all about costs and revenues. Um, and the other thing is that these ESG reports, at least in the US and in many other countries, aren't audited. So there's questions about the veracity of them. There's questions about the usefulness of them at this point, because firms tend to, in their ESG reports, talk about the good without spending too much time talking about the bad. Um, so what do you mean by the good and the bad? So for I can, I can give you a great example of both being implemented. So I, I uh, met recently with a company called Capital Land, which is a Singaporean real estate company, and they have an amazing ESG report. They have quantitative information, detailed information about diversity within the workforce, and they actually disclose information on the instances they catch of bribery within the company. And something they're wrestling with right now is that their investors are saying, why are you disclosing this? You're so much worse than your competitors. But the truth is, they believe they're better than their competitors. They're just the only company talking about this. So they're talking about the bad in hopes that that will lend legitimacy to the good. And the good tends to be, you know, companies that have a high proportion of women in managerial roles, they'll disclose that, while companies that don't tend to stay mum on it. Um, on the environmental side, firms will talk about climate mitigation without talking about actual numbers. You know, a great example of 
the good is uh, if you look at Goldman Sachs's ESG report from 2020, I believe the cover has two smokestacks spitting green leaves into the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so does the accounting information show any of the positive um, financial consequences of ESG projects, even if it's something like diversity? Within the accounting reports? Yeah. Um, so the audited financial statements that firms disclose, the annual report tend to have very little of this information in them, in large part because of litigation risk. And by that, I mean that companies can largely say whatever they want in these ESG reports without threat of, you know, if they get it wrong, investors are going to sue. But that's not the case in their 10Ks. If, if they lie in their in their regulated filings, the CEO gets in trouble. So without regulation, we're seeing a lot of reluctance from firms to disclose this information. Your answer spoke a lot about the social aspects. Um, from, an env- from an environmental perspective, how do you think um, carbon taxes being imposed, for instance, carbon offsetting, as well as introducing circularity within the industries, which can reduce cost of goods sold, do you see that scientific um, scientific um, measures being taken by the industries can be reflected one-on-one in a balance sheet or in these reports in the future? No, and that's that's the frustrating aspect. Well, I, I can see it in the future, but right now that's one of the frustrating aspects of it because, you know, ESG issues are largely a risk issue right now. You know, on the environmental side, it's all about the threat of regulation, the threat of a carbon tax, which the science tends to argue is the best way to curb emissions. Whether we'll get there or not is another question. But firms don't spend a lot of time disclosing this information, in part because it's, you know, forward-looking information with a lot of uncertainty, but it's also that, you know, they, it will significantly reduce their profitability. You know, we we at impact weighted accounts we monetize the environmental impact, and when you do that and actually assume that there will be a carbon tax, it wipes out the profits for pretty much all of the airline industry. No, no airline is going to be making money once there's a fair carbon tax. That actually brings me to another question. So, um, since ESG reporting, as you say, is voluntary, uh, and there's no regulator that's really monitoring the compliance with the reporting guidelines, can we consider ESG information um, that companies provide to be reliable and unbiased? I don't know. I think to some extent, yes. You know, it's the the information they're reporting. I I imagine that there are nefarious actors, as there are with financial reporting. There are companies that are always going to cheat on their financial statements. Um, I imagine, though, that most of them are fairly accurate to the extent that they can be, but that's in part because the accuracy is on information that they believe makes them look good. Mm. Do you think um, it's important to set a list of um, environmental indicators that all companies should be calculating the same way? And if so, um, who do you think should take the responsibility to regulate the sector? Should it be the government, um, individual sector stakeholders, or both? Uh, So I I do. I think that without standards, we're never going to get to a place where this information can be very useful to investors or other stakeholders. Um, I think that, you know, in the U.S., I actually have research on this. The Sustainable Accounting Standards Board introduced these voluntary set of standards for firms at the sector level, the industry level, which is also necessary because there's so many different ESG issues that pertain to different industries. So you need to make it kind of bespoke per industry. But in my research, we show that after these standards are released, companies start disclosing a lot more on the issues that the SASB defined as material to investors. And so I think that you know there's clearly a taste for it and a desire for it from companies writ large. 
Uh, but I also think that we're not going to go a long way without government intervention. I think we need you know, regu government regulators to demand that firms disclose specific information. So if it's a bit of a wild west out there when it comes to voluntary reporting, what is the benefit for me, say, as uh, an airline or as any company to actually report any of my ESG activities? Right now, the biggest incentive is that your owners are demanding it. I mean, when I say your owners, you are owned by BlackRock, State Street, Fidelity, and Vanguard. They own every company and they own a lot of every company. And they are all demanding this information, again, from the risk mitigation side. So I, I think that that's the biggest incentive. I mean, Larry Fink in his letters saying that if you're not disclosing to SASB, we're going to start voting against your board. State Street now um, is demanding that firms publicly release diversity information without having to worry. And if they don't, they're going to start voting against board members. Um, you know, I think maybe just to build on this topic a little bit, um, in many jurisdictions around the world, you have environmental regulators, you have workplace health and safety regulators. Um, how do you see these ESG reports, which are primarily, you know, I guess, oriented towards stakeholders generally, but primarily towards investors? How do you see that interplaying with these government regulators in various industries? It's a tricky question. Um, we, there's actually we have, we have some research in our field that looks at this in the in the mining industry around safety, and it finds that companies for years have been required to disclose safety information about mining to uh, a government agency that focuses on worker worker health and safety, but. Then there was a change in the laws that required them to also disclose this in their 10K in the financial statements. And they found that investors actually reacted more so once it's in the financial statements, even though the information was already out there. And so my hope, my ideal world would be one where you have these kinds of organizations, you know, the environmental, the environmental regulators, the worker health and safety regulators demanding that firms disclose this information, which many of them do on a confidential basis. And then the government, the you know, investor regulators, the SEC, for example, or IFRS, then taking the, those as best practices and requiring that firms disclose them in their financial statements. And there's two benefits there too. First, it's that these regulators, this is their expertise. They know what really matters. Um, but also, this is information that firms are already disclosing. So in the US, firms are required to confidentially disclose detailed diversity information about their workforce. And after the SEC passed regulation demanding, requiring firms to disclose additional information about human capital, this is what firms started to disclose. It's stuff that they're already measuring. They're measuring with accuracy because they have to measure it honestly. And so it's a lot easier for a firm to do that than to start developing measures from scratch, which is insanely costly for a global organization. It sounds like in these instances, sort of regulation has really uh, moved the dial so to speak. Um, why, in your opinion, uh, maybe than an actual fact, why do you think that then regulators sort of around the world are taking their time to actually put in these set standards and actually force companies to, to make these changes? One big reason I see this in the US is that these issues have been unjustifiably politicized. And so to say ESG is to violate the shareholder rights view of the world that we have in the United States. Um, but the other one is that it's really hard to identify the what measures matter. And 
getting it wrong is really costly. So I, my dissertation is on um, the CEO pay ratio, which firms were dis- required to disclose in the US starting in 2017. It took about 10 years to get from creating the rule to actually getting firms to disclose it. And my research, and there's a growing consensus that this information actually all, isn't all that relevant to investors. And yet so much time was there. Once a, once you have a measure on the books, it's really hard to get it off the books. And so I think that there's, you know, I know that there is a lot of hesitancy or a lot, a lot of fact finding that the regulators want to do. I've been talking to the SEC about this for almost a year right now on the human capital side, and they're still just wrestling with what measures do we want? How many measures do we want? So why do we group these three topics, environmental, social governance, why do we group them together? What ties them together? And um, why don't we think of them separately? Doesn't that just make it more confusing? I agree completely. I don't know. (laughs) I I guess we group them together because we think of them, you know, or we initially thought of them broadly as non-financial impact. You know, these are issues that firms should concern themselves with because they have impact on society beyond shareholders. But the push for more information and the advancements in the disclosures have come from the investors. And so I think that environmental and social kind of fit neatly together to some extent. But yeah, I see your skepticism. <laughs> I, I'm not convincing myself as I say that either. Um, yeah, it's a great point. I'll just leave it at that. Yes, I, I think we should think about these things separately. You spoke about um, ESG reports uh, going away from the shareholders' view of, uh, let's say, financial reporting. But it isn't all investment and no gains. So there is, let's say, gains um, as in by investing in projects that achieve ESG. We mitigate a risk of losing business that we might lose otherwise. Um, And there are positive benefits that we can gain by uh, facilitating social equality. What, according to you, is the business case for ESG from a purely financial perspective? From a purely purely financial perspective, it is risk mitigation. It's long-term risk mitigation. It's still consistent with shareholder capitalism because my shareholders, again, are a few companies that invest the retirement savings of everyone in the world. And so I don't care that I, you know, one company makes, you know, 10 cents more per share than another company next quarter. I care that when I'm ready to retire and I don't know, maybe if I win the lottery next year, but if not, you know, 20 years down the road, I care that my savings have grown and that I have a society, a comfortable society in which to retire to. And so that for me, that's a pretty compelling business case. From a financial perspective, you can also have ESG projects um, that are profitable, right? Without Without a doubt. I mean, you think about something like investing in your workforce, investing in training. Right now, I I, I worked with a, one of the 10 largest employers in the world. Um, they employ a ton of low-wage workers, and their biggest cost is turnover. And not only that, they can't grow because they can't hire enough people. They had 15,000 job openings in the U.S. alone. Um, and they were, invest- they were trying to figure out how to invest in training to stop that, to Create create better retention, and so something an investment like that is clearly there's a direct link between that investment and profitability. Now, from an accounting perspective, the challenge for managers, especially of publicly traded companies, is that unlike with property, plant, and equipment, that investment isn't recognized on the balance sheet as an investment; it's recognized as an expense, and so you're in you're eating the costs now for benefits that are going to probably pay off in the in the future in a way that's much less directly identifiable to the actual investment. So you wouldn't be able to show that as a profitable 
project exactly. until later on. Exactly. And, and and when you say until later on, you know, by, by the time it mm. starts paying off dividends, you can say, look, hey, part of this is that we invested in training our workforce, but the labor market changes during that time. Their business models change during that time. And so even there, it's very challenging to make a direct link. But I guess stakeholders and investors, when they're looking at these projects on the balance sheet, if they see kind of costs being spent, they'll take that into account and know what the purpose of the project is and the potential benefits, right? Not really, because co companies actually aren't talking about this at all. So first of all, it doesn't show up at all on the balance sheet, right? It doesn't, you know, they're not creating an asset because they don't have control of their employees. So I can spend, you know, tens of millions of dollars in sending my managers to executive education programs at Cambridge or Harvard Business School. But that just goes into cost of goods sold and selling general and administrative in in under IFRS, firms also disclose a total workforce investment number, but these numbers aren't disaggregated. So they're still, they're all expenses. They only go into the uh, income statement. And and unless managers are actually openly communicating to their investors about this, there's no information in the, in the regulatory disclosures on it. Since we're already talking about companies and the measures that they take, and you already mentioned you've worked with about 10 companies and your project itself, uh, talks about the impact weights or the product or the supply chain. Um, so what? how many companies or how are companies making ESG and sustainability a part of their strategy? And how are they operationalizing this? What are some, some best practices that you've, you've noticed so far? So best practices are, I mean, what the clearest back best practice is continually revisiting and questioning any investment you make because we're still in a very uncertain wild west world is a great way to describe it we really you know we don't know what pays off we don't know how it pays off so going back to this company that was investing in their workforce when they initially started spending money on training they didn't move the needle at all on turnover it didn't help them at all and they were kind of scratching their head they're like we're spending more on training but we're not seeing the returns and then we looked at what training was actually happening and it was largely compliance training. So it was training people to do the job they have now, not prepare them for jobs of the future. And so that, that you know that's troubling, but at the same time, that's kind of a best practice because you go back, you question your assumptions, you examine what's going wrong, and then you adapt. Um, on the environmental side, it, it's similar. You know, it's trying to find things, uh, trying to find actions aligned with your business models, and then just carefully wading into them. So Solve, which is a big European chemicals manufacturer. Um, they are very, very focused on addressing emissions, addressing climate change. They have two big businesses. One is their old reliable soda ash business, which is a dirty, dirty business, but extremely reliable profits. And the other is composites, things that go into basically EVs, making planes lighter to reduce fuel uh, to re uh, reduce fuel consumption. Um, and they spent years trying to decide whether to spin off the soda ash or how to deal with the soda ash business. And I think it was three or four years after my colleague wrote a case about them wrestling with this decision, they actually did it. They spun off the soda ash business. Um, but again, it was a slow process. It was thinking about how does it impact the business? How does it impact society? And trying to find that happy medium. So it, it sounds like, you know, it's a sh there's a shift in mindset that that managers kind of have to take right from a, a short term quarterly cycle mindset to okay how are we going to impact uh, the business in the world uh, in a long term uh, sort of focus does that mean that the incentives incentives for 
uh, senior managers for boards do do those things need to shift for that long term mindset to to occur? Yeah, I think incentives are a really important part of it. You know, uh, again, we it it adds a whole layer of complexity because you know when you go back to what Milton Friedman wrote, one of the problems that he really elegantly solves by saying that the sole purpose of business is to maximize profits is the governance issue. Basically, you know, if I have a I'm a shareholder, there's thousands of other shareholders who are not just like me. Um, one side, you know, we can all agree that we're part of the reason we're investing in a company is because we want more money in the future. So we there's consent there's likely consensus among shareholders there. So it solves that problem. But at the same time, the reason that we're shareholders is because we don't want to manage these businesses directly. And so we're trusting the managers to do what is in the best interest of us as shareholders. And that can be a lot of things. Profits is one of them. When we start to think about how do we incentivize for carbon emissions, what happens when you have an executive say, you know, this quarter we lost ten billion dollars, but we went to carbon, we went net uh, carbon neutral. You know, how how do you judge whether the manager did a good job or a bad job? Um, that's not to say we don't need this. I think that not, very little is going to happen without connecting ESG metrics to incentives. But we're still trying to figure out how that works. I mean, therein lies the brilliance of financial reports, right? Because you've got these three statements that all kind of give you this great holistic view of a firm's financial health. And at the end of the day, you can look at that bottom line and you can go, oh, well, yeah, uh, X manager's performance has been amazing because you've got that one line that says plus billions of dollars, say, for example. Do, Do we then need our ESG reports to reflect that simplicity and sort of be that beacon where you can kind of look at it and go, Cool. Here's that one number, maybe three for ES and G. Um, but there's these key metrics, these key numbers that we can go. Okay, great. Um, uh, you're doing a great job when it comes to this uh, ESG. Yeah. So the, I think the key takeaway of your question is that accounting is amazing. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Yes, it is beautiful and elegant. And works really well. Um, but you know, it's the you know when we incentivize managers on earnings, it's still complex. I mean, getting there is a lot of steps. It's billions of transactions in a quarter to get to your earnings per share number. Um, so it's hard, but the number itself you know speaks volumes about the what happened in the last period. It's not that easy on ESG, in part because there are idiosyncrasies. You know, if you're in a tech firm incentivizing executives on reducing carbon emissions doesn't make as much sense as incentivizing them on workforce workforce diversity where you know clearly there's some human capital benefits to really thinking about how to diversify your workforce but i do believe that you need those headline numbers you need to have fairly i mean not simple but understandable numbers that you can tie to executive bonuses um but they also have to be numbers that managers have control over and that are difficult to manipulate. And so, you know, thinking about diversity issues, if you're, you know, an oil and gas company operating in North Dakota, well, um, I'm in the, sorry, I'm in the UK here, uh, <laughs> North Dakota, which is largely, you know, it's a high, high white population. It's going to be really hard to say you need to increase your diversity, your ethnic diversity by X percent, because they just don't have much control over that. So maybe just to build on that topic, um, over the weekend, I was walking through the mall and I was sort of reflecting on the fact of like, you know, I can pick up one product and I can pick up another product and I don't really know which is better from an ESG perspective. And so I was wondering, um, you know, building on what you just said, is there is there a kind of short list of ESG focus areas or 
indicators that uh, immediately come to mind when you're thinking about ESG? From the environmental side, carbon emissions, you know, that's one that you want to see, you want to see for every company go stepping back my tech comment just a moment ago you want to see that for every company but you need to see it for every company to be comparable so in an industry like the services industry where environmental environmental impact tends to be small it's still not immaterial and it would be helpful to see you know which companies in the service sector are better than others um on the s side i think that in, Diversity is an important issue that should be disclosed. It's very measurable. You know, we are in a human capital intensive world. And if your workforce, if your management isn't 50% women, you're missing out on talent that other companies are benefit, other more diverse companies are benefiting from. On the governance side, I'm going to go back to the idea that we should separate all these things um, because, you know, it's, it's, this is something that we directly connect to our, um, to financial accounting, but diversity of the board is also an important issue that I think you know would be helpful to disclose from an investor side. You know, from a consumer side, if I'm walking around a mall and I'm trying to decide between two products, yeah, it'd be helpful to know a you know which one's more poisonous, like which one has crappier ingredients, and b you know from just an ethical perspective, which one is cleaner, greener. Do we as consumers then need to demand more of? Uh companies to be, you know, <laughs> providing this information to us? Yeah. So there's actually this, I, I imagine by now, stale research showing that consumers care about environmental issues, but aren't willing to pay more for it. So if you have two products that are priced exactly the same and one is sustainable, they're going to pick the sustainable one. But if they have to pay more for it, they're unlikely to do that. And I see you giving a skeptical look because this research <laughs> was done like, you know, ages ago in, in this field, which is probably like five years ago because it's just evolved so quickly. Um, I, I imagine that that is changing, but there isn't research to support it yet. Um, but yeah, so so I, I think that this information, you know, th this is the kind of information that we need to give consumers to start testing out these hypotheses. And there is a small Scandinavian organization that's actually trying to, it's called True Price. They're, they're trying to list alongside the retail price, the actual cost uh, or the actual price that a product should be taking into account all the externalities. So I have another question um, on those grounds. Uh, would you consider, so there are a lot of companies who perhaps don't have the opportunity to be net, to be net zero, maybe they're just a group of tech programmers um, who maybe invest their revenues in corporate social responsibility. Is corporate social responsibility a part of ESG for you or is ESG an attribute of a firm? and not the actions that firm takes in the community it operates? That's a very semantic question. You know, it, and I, I think I, I tend to think of them as synonymous. I, I, you know, even when you look at companies' ESG disclosures, some will call it an ESG report, some will call it a CSR report. But I think you do need to have a distinction between, you know, the charitable efforts of an organization and the efforts of an organization that are directly linked to their business that also our, our efforts to minimize the impact on society. So if you look at Home Depot, Home Depot spends a lot of time talking about its product donations and its ESG reports. I would consider that what you were saying is CSR. This is charitable efforts. This is not direct. This, you know, If you're giving products to poor communities, you're not necessarily doing it in a way that's going to help you generate revenues in the, in the future. Whereas if Home Depot is talking about how it's making its stores more efficient by through better insulation, that's more directly related to 
what investors care about because it reduces cost of goods. And it's, it's also more sustainable in the long term. Exactly. And the company has to continue doing it. He, it doesn't have a choice next year to not do it if the funds aren't available. Exactly. Whereas so. with the charitable donations, it can always dial it back when during bad times. All right. So I think we'll move on. Um, earlier, we were talking about uh, the move to ESG from a a kind of short list of these very large investment, major investors, um, you know, just sort of generally, what are they looking for um, when they're evaluating a company to invest in? So it depends on where, you know, what we talk about when we talk about investors. If we're focusing just on publicly traded firms, they're looking for good quantitative metrics that are comparable across firms. Um, again, it's largely about risk mitigation. A lot of them have obligations to hold, if not the entire economy, a large portion of the economy. So right now we're still in the phase of risk uh, of negative screening. By that, I mean that it's not about this company is doing a lot to reduce its carbon emissions. So let's invest in them over another company that's not. It's more about here are a few industries and sectors that are dirty, and so we're just going to avoid them. And it's usually, you know, tobacco, gambling, oil and gas. So that that's where we are right now. One thing I found really interesting about the sort of ESG investing um, debate or movement, um, you know, you're seeing a lot of index funds and ETFs sort of spring up that are heavily focused on this as a sort of a th investing thematic. Um, but, you know, when I was in Australia, there was a, a sort of ESG ETF that I could invest in and I sort of dug a little deeper and I saw that the main holding was Apple, you know, and it, it kind of feels like there's this, it's obviously great that um, people want to invest in this area and this theme, but, you know, how credible actually are these ETFs, these funds um, when it comes to actual underlying ESG? The evidence so far suggests not very credible. I mean, in Germany, they just raided the offices of a large inv uh, investor because they were accusing it of basically greenwashing. They were saying that these are ESG funds, and it turns out that's not the case. And I think part of the reason we see that ESG funds have done so well in the short term is that they are tech heavy because tech just tends to be a cleaner industry. And so it's not like they're differentiating between Apple, Google, and Meta. They're just saying, we're going to invest in these companies that don't create a lot of carbon emissions. This in part comes from the fact that measurement just isn't mature enough yet. So a lot of these funds make decisions based on the the ESG ratings agencies. And there it's a whole nother problem because they often disagree. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago about how uh, one of the major ESG raters rated Tesla as the best automobile manufacturer and another rated it as the worst. And so you know we're basically making decisions with junk information at this point. So it's, it's very, I, I don't see a compelling thesis for ESG type index funds, because there's just not enough information to make decisions about what to include and what not to include in those funds. And that's the thing, right? Like, um, you know, I don't want to disparage the Apple name, but, you know, the production of the iPhone, you could argue from a social side, uh, some of their suppliers may not necessarily have the same standards of how they treat their workforce compared to maybe another company. You look at someone like Meta and you know, what's the social impact of social media and how do you then weigh that up with, you know, maybe they are a low emitting company. So it's just interesting that there's, uh, you know, the tech may be seen as currently a, a good ESG type company, 
but you know if you dig a bit deeper that it becomes quite gray right completely and i mean especially on the s side because you know there there were all these recent meta leaks where it turns out that socially this company is probably creating more harm than good um but it, it comes back to um something we've been talking about for a while now which is you know the trade off between is this cost is esg costly or is it is are there ways that it can be profitable and in reality we're moving into a world where resources are going to become increasingly scarce and so everybody is going to suffer and profitability is going to suffer, suffer at all of these organizations and so we need the information not just to say this is good or bad but also these are the companies that ha are thinking about how to survive in a resource sca scarce environment and these are the companies that are aligned with my morals my own personal values and we get there by better disclosure and right now most of that better disclosure is coming from whistleblowers within organizations yeah so um i think we're sort of getting on scratching to our sort of fourth and final topic that we wanted to talk to you about Ethan. um and that's sort of like the blue sky vision for esg so i think you know uh quite a uh, thought-provoking question and open-ended question but you know what in your opinion is is the blue sky for esg reporting i think the blue sky is standards that require firms to provide quantitative information that is auditable that includes both the good and the bad we need some kind of credibility in what firms are disclosing about ESG and we don't have that at this point. And so, you know, I mentioned this company Capital Land, which I think is, you know, getting to that ideal world. It's, you know, a short report, you know, under 100 pages, largely quantitative with explanations of why this quantitative information is there. So it's not just our board consists of 40% women and 60% men. It's why are we disclosing this information? Why does it matter? And who does it matter to? And so I, I think it's it's not too different from what we see in an annual report that we need. We need stuff. We need not just managers to talk about the numbers, but we need them to talk about why they're talking about the numbers so that investors can get a big picture on how firms think about their ESG strategy and how they inextricably link their ESG strategy with their operational strategy. And when you talk about quantifying these things, it can be quite hard, right? There's probably a lot of bias in that. So how do you think we could regulate quantifying things like in the social or um, governance side of things. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough thing, you know. It's it's we're really in the early days. And you know, one of the pushbacks I get I give when people are when people say this is all soft, it's really hard to measure this is that, you know, financial accounting is the modern financial accounting system has been used for more than 100 years, and it's still evolving, and we're still figuring it out. You know, we just, in the U.S., they just had a dramatic change to the revenue recognition rule. Revenue should be the easiest number to measure, and we're still thinking about how to do it well after 100 years. We're 10 years into ESG, and it's unrealistic to expect it to be as accurate and, re and reliable as financial accounting. But even in financial accounting, there's this trade-off between relevance and reliability. You know, you can think uh, you can fair value everything, and it would be incredibly relevant, but it wouldn't be very reliable because prices are always changing. Um, or we could just go to total cash, and that would be very reliable because we can count the dollars in the register. But it's not very relevant because you have accounts receivable, you have accounts payable, you have all these other things. Nobody would invest in PP&E if you're doing cash accounting. And so I, I think we need to understand that 
but also start working toward you know a simple set of metrics on both environmental and social issues that we have we rel- there's a hypothesis that it affects all firms and that is observable and so carbon emissions is a really good one resource consumption firms know how much water they use and where they use it these are you know these are things that are not just relevant from an environmental perspective but from a cost perspective i mean water is becoming increasingly costly if you are operating an automotive manufacturer in southwest united states you're in deep trouble right now because there's just not enough water to support that um on the social side again it's i think it's you know managers making the cases to what they think of as human capital where their risks are within this human capital and how they think about measuring that because part of it is that they you can't make decisions without good measurement and so if you are a company where humans are your most valuable asset if you're not measuring those most valuable assets in an effective way you're not going to be a successful firm since we're already talking about measurements um in my early days when i had to do the first esg portfolio uh, my my rookie step was to download a few csr reports and read it uh, from different companies from different countries and it seems like the only framework everyone knows and uses um, is the sdgs the un sdgs what is your honest opinion on the un sdgs I can give you options if you want, but oh, no, if you I, have an honest opinion, I, I, go ahead. My, my honest opinion is, is that they serve as great beacons. You know, they are, you know, a comprehensive set of goals that affect everyone in society, and firms managing toward them can make the world a better place. They can also create profitable opportunities, and so, um, so yeah, I, I think that they're great from that perspective. I also think that they're nuanced enough that a firm can clearly communicate, "Hey, we're focusing on SDG three eight nine because this is directly related to our business." And to give you an example, there's a private equity firm called Sumo, which started out in Norway but has now gone global and is immensely successful. They're they're actually raising their third uh, their third portfolio now. Um, that was their initial hypothesis. We are going to invest in firms that address the UN SDGs. And when they started, people said, you're limiting yourself. There's no way you're going to find this. And you know, they've invested. One of their best investments was a Norwegian waste management company. It was a horribly dirty, corrupt industry. And the company they invested in has become the dominant player in the industry because they're focused on recyclability and the circular economy and are making, they basically put every other waste management company in Norway out of business. And I think we are at a good point to end here. Just before we close the session, I'd like to ask you to summarize your main takeaway. So in one or two sentences, what do you think um, should we focus on going forward? Tilda, do you want to start? Sure. I think the main takeaway is the, the lack of regulation. Um, and I think that needs to advance quite a lot so that we can get somewhere with ESG and um, standardize the practices between companies, between industries. You know, I agree. I, I um, you know, ESG is clearly very, very important in today's environment. Um, you know, some of the challenges that are out there, as as Matilde said, is comparability um, and uh, and uh, sort of continuity and approach through kind of within industry, but then also between industry because investors are not holding themselves to one single industry typically. Mario? Uh, I've learned that this stuff is hard. <laughs> and uh, currently there doesn't seem to be sort of a, a silver bullet uh, per se. But I think maybe 
uh, an actionable step that I've taken away, then is splitting out ESNG and being a bit more um, thoughtful about how we approach all three of those different uh, areas. Priya? I think my takeaway would also be the, the requirement of a guideline, um, a global guideline that would make uh, ESG understandable for everyone, those trying to report it and those trying to read it and use it for decision making, something a little more quantitative than the SDGs perhaps, but still qualitative enough so it's not bound by an accounting framework in some ways. And Ethan? My, my key takeaway is that we're we're still in the very early days of dealing with ESG issues, but we don't have time to wait for them to evolve. And so what we need is young, new leaders with a fresh perspective to come in and tackle issues that the managers of today have just been ignoring because that's been their life and career. Thank you all. And thanks everyone for joining today's session. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was so much fun. Thank you. If you want to contact us, feel free to reach out. Our contact details can be found on the website of the Accounting Subject Group at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and join us next time.